Thank you so much for tuning in to Let's Talk, the official podcast of the National Runaway Safe Line. The National Runaway Safe Line, or NRS, is the federally supported national communication system for runaway, homeless, and at-risk youth in the United States, providing crisis support and resources for over 125,000 young people, families, and communities annually. I'm Christopher, the Communications and Graphic Design Manager at NRS, and I hope you learn as much as I do on this journey to elevate the voices of young people and youth-facing organizations as they share their stories and highlight the complexities and intersections witnessed by 4.2 million young people facing homelessness each year. Transcripts for the Let's Talk podcast are available at 1-800-runaway.org slash transcripts. Check out the description for this episode for a direct link. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jonah Deschance, a research scientist from the Trevor Project. Welcome, Jonah. And would you mind starting off by telling us a little bit about your background? Yeah, absolutely. So my background is as a social work researcher. I, I mean, coming out of college and, and throughout my young adulthood, did a lot of work in youth development. So I was a, a camp counselor, a paraprofessional in a classroom, um, all sorts of jobs with kids. And then gradually after college, I started working with organizations that were doing youth development trainings, so training adults to work with young people. Um, and then that gradually pushed me into grad school where I was working with a, a family shelter in Philadelphia. And that was where I started to think about youth homelessness. That shelter is where we were really starting to think about how adult homeless services are not designed for young people, right? A lot of young people don't want to go to an adult shelter. They don't feel safe in those spaces. And so the organization I was working for realized that they weren't serving teenagers very well. A lot of these teenagers were getting separated from their families when they entered the family shelter. And so that was a, a sort of brought together my youth work and, and merged me into the, the house, housing and homelessness space. And so then finally, I, I decided to go back to graduate school for my doctorate degree um, at the University of Denver, where I studied LGBTQ youth homelessness in particular. So we know that LGBTQ young people are overrepresented among young people experiencing homelessness. We know that they experience unique barriers when it comes to exiting homelessness and accessing housing services. So that was really what my work focused on throughout my dissertation. And then I graduated, I did a quick postdoc up at Colorado State University. And then I found this job posting at the Trevor Project, which was super exciting for me. It was just an opportunity to work on LGBTQ issues primarily, then the opportunity to work more directly in the LGBT movement and community was was exciting for me. So that was my sort of circuitous path uh, to, to research and then to research at the Trevor Project in particular. No, oh, so it's actually, it should be Dr. Jonah Deschance, correct? <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> technically. Now, you mentioned social work researcher. That's something I've never heard of before, and I'm sure it's something that has always existed. It's just not at the front of mind. And in fact, when I think of data scientists, I don't immediately think of like the nonprofit world. What are some of the values that brought you into this line of work? Yeah, so originally I actually really wanted to be in academia. Uh, I wanted to do academic research. I wanted to to teach. And when I found the job at Trevor, I I was really I was sort of surprised because it, it really caused me to to think about all those goals that I had had about in academia and start to think outside of academia. And for me, some of the big draw was the fact that Trevor also has an advocacy arm. So we have folks who who partner with state and local organizations to talk to lawmakers, decision makers, to try and both fight bad legislation. So a lot of these bad bills that we've seen in the last six months to a year attacking LGBTQ young people, um, trans and non-binary young people in particular, 
also trying to promote good bills, protections, suicide prevention resources in schools. And so for me, it was very exciting to think about working in the same organization as those folks and being a researcher who can both ask those people for feedback about the research, right? I can go to our advocacy folks and I can say, okay, what are the issues that you're seeing on the ground or that you're hearing from folks on the ground? And then I can also turn around and hand the data back to them. And then they can hand it to lawmakers and decision makers. So for me, that sort of direct connection to advocacy and, and conversations with decision makers was, was really exciting and compelling. I think there's also an interesting connection with being part of an organization that does direct service, right? We are primarily a crisis services organization. And so I also really appreciate the opportunity to work with my colleagues who are answering calls, chats, texts mm -hmm. from young people who are in crisis and to get their perspective as well. You know, what, what should we put on next year's survey? What are the issues that you're actually hearing from young people on the ground? So for me, it was that opportunity to do work that's informed by non researchers um, and by the both the direct service and the advocacy part of Trevor's organization. Yeah, you mentioned like legislation that's currently out that is affecting young young homeless people specifically. Well, and we'll definitely talk about that a little bit later. But I am curious thinking about putting the survey together as a data scientist, I'm sure that language is very important to you. And one of the things that I was thinking about is what informs your decision on the language that you use in the survey. For example, at National Runaway Safe Line, because we work so directly with lots of partners who have direct contact with young people, as well as the direct contact we have with young people ourselves, it became very apparent that it was important to include um, like the 2S, which is two-spirit uh, identifier along with our um, acronym when we refer to the LGBTQ community. So I do also recognize that like for the purpose of the survey, perhaps that like depending on exactly how people were identifying or what questions you were asking, that may also inform the language there. So can you give us a little bit of insight into that? Yeah, thanks so much for asking that. I love this question. Yes, there are, there are different iterations of the acronym. Um, we tend to go with LGBTQ both in the survey and our sort of public work because for us, it strikes the right balance between being inclusive. For me, I think the the letter that, that is doing a lot of work to include people is Q, right? Um, that could, for me can both stand for queer and for questioning. And especially when we're talking about young people, for me, it's important to, to include folks who are questioning, although folks can question their sexual orientation or gender identity at any point in their life. That being said, we are missing a couple letters, right? We're missing the A for asexual folks. We're missing two S for two-spirit folks. And for us, that was just sort of a, you know, we had to keep it a little bit shorter for, for our communications purposes. That being said, this, this question of language has come up a lot in survey and how we measure people, right? When we ask young people, what is your sexual orientation? And so what we do is we try to expend a fair amount of energy and time in trying to figure out which options we should offer young people, right? And so which new terms or, or labels are, are sort of bubbling up from the community? That's something that in the LGBTQ community, we're pretty consistently developing new language to describe different aspects of ourselves, our identities, our experiences. I love that about us. Um, I think that makes us interesting and uh, exciting, uh, but it is sort of challenging from a data perspective when then you're trying to put everybody in, in categories, right? And so the way we do it actually is the first question that we will ask about demographics is we will ask young people, what word do you use to describe your sexual orientation? And we leave it blank. Um, and so that's an open-ended answer. They can write in whatever term feels the most comfortable for them. That's our way of not policing or trying to control um, what language they use. And then we ask a follow-up question and we say, 
Thank you so much for telling us about your sexual orientation. Sometimes we have to put people in categories. Which of these categories is the best option for you? And then we let folks pick. And I believe we allow people to select multiple identity labels as well. And then we have, uh, I, it's a list of like maybe 10 to 15 different terms. So we also err on the side of including lots and lots of different labels. And we do that for both sexual orientation and gender identity. And then every year we do sort of go through all of the labels and see if there are any more that we need to add. So we've been better about adding asexual as one of the options in recent years. You know, we're sort of constantly always thinking about, you know, pansexual versus queer versus bisexual. And then we we may put some of those folks back into groups, right? Sometimes we'll compare folks who we call multisexual. So folks who are uh, attracted to multiple genders. So that's the bi, pan, queer, we, we put those folks in a group and sometimes we'll compare them to our monosexual folks uh, as a way of sort of trying to understand, you know, are, are there differences in risk and mental health outcomes? So sorry, that was maybe a little bit more of a scientific answer than you were looking for, but, but that's our way of trying to both give young people the opportunity to use whatever language is most comfortable for them, and then also give them the opportunity to pick which box they want to be put in for statistical purposes. And then we do try to sort of publish and write about all the different identities that go into the LGBTQ umbrella uh, while still using LGBTQ as sort of our umbrella term. I actually think that's really beautiful. Like the idea of just presenting a blank space and allowing people to fill that in however they choose, and then following up with something that feels personal, the best category for you, I think is the perfect approach for that. And for the record, LGBTQ is the GLAD approved version of the acronym that is seen as the umbrella term that captures everything. Now, focusing on the survey, what, what were the primary goals going into the survey? Because if, this isn't the first year that Trevor Project has done this mental health survey, correct? Correct. Uh, I believe this is our third year. I could be a bit incorrect on that, but it is for sure. It's at least our third. It may be our fourth. Yeah, the goal is to really try to get a more holistic understanding of all of the different factors that could be impacting LGBTQ youth's mental health, both for better and for worse. So other research has also found these pretty big disparities for LGBTQ youth and mental health, right? We know that LGBTQ youth have higher rates of anxiety, depression, um, and much higher rates of suicide risk. So suicidal ideation and uh, attempting suicide compared to their straight and cisgender peers. And the way that the framework that we use to really sort of guide our research questions and the survey and the questions we ask on the survey here at Trevor is the framework of minority stress. And so that's a concept in, in public health and psychology that says that for all of your marginalized identities, whether it's your LGBTQ identity, your racial or cultural identity, your ability, your class, the more marginalization you experience based on those identities, whether that's again, the homophobia, transphobia, racism, sexism, all of that can manifest in the form of stress. And then that shows up in these mental health systems, right? And so that for us is sort of this, this counter to this, this incorrect narrative that we sometimes see where folks will sometimes think, oh, you know, LGBTQ youth are just more inherently mentally ill than straight and cisgender youth. And that's not true. There's nothing about being LGBTQ that makes you inherently uh, more vulnerable to mental health symptoms. But the way that you're treated by society can certainly make you more vulnerable to those experiences. And so that's why the survey is pretty comprehensive. Uh, it's 150 questions. Uh, we certainly ask about those mental health outcomes, right? So we do ask about symptoms of recent anxiety, symptoms of recent depression, suicide risk. But then we're also asking about all different sorts of different things in the young person's environment. So we ask young people to tell us, you know, how affirming is your home? How affirming is your school? How affirming is your community? 
Do you think that your parents are supportive? Who do you live with who, that uses your pronouns correctly? How do your friends support you? Do you participate in sports? You know, we just ask all sorts of different questions about different aspects of young people's lives. And then we try to see those relationships, right? So we're trying to take a look at, okay, um, and we see, frequently see findings like, you know, young people who do attend a more affirmative, uh, affirming or a supportive school do report better mental health outcomes. And so those are the kinds of relationships that we're looking at with the survey. And so our goal every year is to get both sort of a timely understanding. So we want to make sure that our, our questions are relevant. So we, we added questions about COVID two years ago. We're also consistently adding questions about the evolving political climate that young people are in, but then also getting a pretty comprehensive snapshot of, of all of the things that could be either stressors or protective factors for our LGBTQ youth. You said something that to me was really touching, and it kind of brings me back to a quote that I remember seeing very recently, and it said something to the tune of being black, gay, and queer isn't an exceptional act, but being black, gay, queer, and proud is an exceptional act. Like, having the positive affirmations Mm. and the support system, it's really what makes a huge difference for the majority of young people. And a lot of the questions that you were saying that you were asking are questions that I really, as an adult, look back and like, I really wish that someone was asking me those questions because it also helps me learn a lot about myself. Right, absolutely. Yeah, we spend a lot of time trying to think about intersectionality in our work, right? So this understanding of how a young person's multiple identities may, and most of our, a lot of our work centers on sort of the ways in which having multiple marginalized identities uh, increases risk, right? So we, t- we generally tend to find increased mental health um, symptoms among our LGBTQ youth of color or our LGBTQ youth who have disabilities. But yeah, intersectionality can also be protective, right? So for, for some folks, having multiple identities gives you multiple communities and histories and sources of connection to rely on. And so in that sense, you know, we, we have to do a better job of sort of combating this, this narrative of, of having multiple identities is just risk. It is certainly risk because we live in a society that has both anti-LGBT sentiment and racism and sexism and all these other um, systems of... of of marginalization and oppression, but having multiple identities is also a source of strength um, and a source of connection for a lot of young people. And so we, we do try to write the survey in a way that, that can capture that as, as well as possible. Mm-hmm. Now on the topic of intersections, uh, there was a Trevor Project report that came out earlier this year called Homelessness and Housing Instability Among LGBT Youth. And I, I really want to you know look at the different intersections that you're aware of between youth mental health and youth homelessness. Yeah, so let's see, this, I wrote this report back in the fall. This is something that's very close to my heart based off of my work prior to Trevor, where I was studying LGBTQ youth homelessness. Yeah, I mean, mental health and housing instability are just sort of a, a chicken and the egg kind of problem from a scientific and practitioner perspective, right? We know that young people who have mental health issues are more prone to housing instability. I mean, things like exiting a hospitalization and not having anywhere to go or having your mental health system symptoms cause conflict with your family or not feeling supported um, in your mental health by your family and feeling like your home is no longer a safe place. Combining that with any sort of family conflict or family rejection around a young person's LGBTQ identity, that's a huge source of stress and can have an impact on folks' mental health. And then we also know that, that then housing instability 
it is stressful and causes mental health problems. It is is stressful to not know where you're going to be sleeping. It is stressful to to be staying outside or in a public space. We know that housing instability is associated with high rates of victimization. That's a very vulnerable position to be in, and then therefore victimization then contributes also to trauma and and mental health issues. So. We can't really tackle one without tackling the other, right? Um, you can't expect folks to have good mental health if they don't have a place to stay. Um, and you can't really expect folks to, you know, be stable in housing if they if they are really experiencing severe mental health issues. So all of which to say, I, I think we are doing a better job in, in sort of the practice world of understanding how these issues are connected and making sure that, that our housing systems and our mental health care systems are, are more connected, but there's always room for improvement. So, so I would love to see us do more work in trying to, you know, get young people who are experiencing housing instability connected to mental health services, maybe getting some housing instability screening in our mental health services too, so we can have sort of a bi-directional referral pathway there. And then making sure both those service spaces are also culturally competent. So making sure that they're LGBTQ culturally competent, that they understand how to work with young people who are queer, trans, non-binary. And then also uh, we hear pretty directly from young people that the cultural competence can't just be about LGBTQ issues. It also has to be about their racial and cultural identity or their ability. So making sure that we have counselors and housing staff who can can work with young people of a variety of different backgrounds, making sure that we have things like ASL interpretation for, for young people who are deaf or hard of hearing, folks who know how to work with folks who are autistic or on the spectrum, all, all these different factors. So, so it's a complex, multifaceted issue, but it is certainly very connected and it's certainly an area where I think we can continue to have a lot of impact. And you're speaking directly to our own data, which strongly suggests that the young people who are reaching out to us in crisis are really seeking mental health intervention, like they're seeking mental health professionals to talk to them about some of the issues that they're, that they're experiencing. There's a couple of questions that, that kind of leads me to. The first is something that I like to ask really in all of our podcasts is that is any of the data that you are working with suggesting that the age of young people who are verbalizing concerns about mental health is skewing younger? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, anecdotally, uh, based on what I see in, in working with young people, the big thing that that really strikes me with I'm trying to avoid sounding like an old person, young people these days. <laughs> um, but you know, you know, when I when I do interact with young people, I am really struck by the level of mental health literacy among young people. Due to social media or due to better education, I think, you know, teenagers, young people today, young adults, they have so much more language to describe their mental health than than I did back when I was a young person. And so I, it wouldn't surprise me if young people are, are able to describe their mental health experiences a, a little bit more vocally. I think there's a little bit less stigma, although stigma certainly still persists. People do feel a little bit more comfortable being open about mental health experiences or diagnoses. And then also, I think, again, it's sort of similar to the way that we have this explosion of language to describe identity and experience in the LGBTQ community. We're also experiencing a pretty big explosion and proliferation of language around mental health. So folks have so much more understanding these days about, you know, what anxiety can look like or what depression can look like. And I think folks are a little bit more open to talking about that. So so yes, I think we are kind of seeing that a little bit that we haven't seen in the past, but unfortunately I, I don't have a ton of, of data to back that up. Well, the follow-up to that question is that like the, the survey itself is exploding with data that does tell us like that these young people do want mental health care. 
Uh, And I believe, according to the survey, it was about 60% of those young people who did want mental health care were not able to get it. Is there any advice you have for those young people who are not able to find the health care that they're seeking or maybe even the uh, providers who are looking to help those young people? Yeah, that was a, a pretty strong and to me, I, maybe it shouldn't have been surprising, but a little bit of a surprising finding from this year's survey is that statistic that of 60% of young people wanting mental health care and not being able to get it. And following up, we, we ask young people, you know, what are the barriers that actually prevent you from getting mental health care? And the I'm not going to remember the exact prevalence, but the, the items that tend to pop up are things like, I can't afford it, uh, my parents won't allow me, I don't have transportation to get to or from uh, any sort of mental health treatment. That one is particularly relevant for young people experiencing homelessness. I do remember that from our housing report. And then also a lot of young people have trepidation. They feel sort of worried that the counselor won't understand their LGBTQ identity or one of their other identities. And they have fear that the therapy might not work. They might not help them feel better. And so those are all barriers that we as adults can work to dismantle, right? Trying to make sure that there is better access for young people. Um, I live in the state of Colorado where recently, um, I don't know exactly how it happened through the legislature or state department of health, but all teenagers in the, the uh, state of Colorado recently had access to, I believe, I'm not going to remember the exact number, but a certain number of, of free therapy sessions. Um, so I think that's a really interesting initiative. In terms of advice for young people, that one's tricky, right? Because these barriers are really real. But I think not being afraid to ask for help would be my first piece of advice. So trying to reach out to adults, folks like your school guidance counselor for referrals, right? So asking, you know, can you help me find a therapist? And and even going so far as to say, can you help me perhaps find a therapist who will understand these parts of my identity or these parts of my experience? calling a helpline um, and trying to get connected through a therapist there as well. So reaching out to maybe your, you know, your your local mental health uh, community. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of folks out there trying to provide referrals and who can try and point you in the right direction. The other piece of advice that I give is, you know, sticking with it and trying to find a therapist or a modality or, or a group, whatever that looks like, whatever works best for you, right? I think sometimes folks try talk therapy or they, they get a, a counselor or a therapist who they don't quite mesh with and then they think, oh, okay, like, that's it. I tried. It's over. And actually, there are lots of therapists out there with lots of different styles. And um, it's a matter of trying to find someone who has the right style or provides the right feedback for you. And so if you had a bad experience, don't be afraid to try again. Um, don't be afraid to, to, to leave a therapist who isn't working for you and go find somebody who, who can provide help. Because um, I think that's, it can take a little bit of time. And I don't think folks always realize that, especially young people who may not be, who may be accessing this for the first time. Uh, in terms of adults and advice for adults, I would say, you know, if you were a teacher or, or a faith leader or someone who works directly with youth, again, trying to develop your own sort of personal Rolodex of, of resources for young people in your community. So maybe trying to reach out and and learn for yourself uh, therapists in your community who work with youth or, and who are trained in LGBTQ issues or um, racial and cultural issues. Even if you don't need it right now, you may need it in the future. So making sure that you have access to that information to share, I think, uh, can be a really powerful tool and being that conduit for a young person to help them get connected to to quality mental health um, care can have a, a huge and potentially life-saving impact. To your point, in the last episode, Kimberly Waller, who is the Deputy Commissioner for the Family and Youth Services Bureau, pointed out that one of the most valuable and important tools for a young person is an adult who they can truly trust and confide in. 
after that conversation, I left understanding the importance of being able to be that adult uh, that a young person can come to for help. Yes. Now, you interviewed, or I don't know if you personally interviewed, but there were 30,000 young people interviewed for this survey, plus more than that, all of them self-identifying as LGBTQ+. What, what is the most surprising thing that you learned about them? Yeah, so this is a, a self-administered survey. I would love to do interviews with everyone, but unfortunately that's not logistically feasible with 30,000. So yeah, folks are filling this survey out online. Yeah, let's see what was surprising. Um, I always get a sort of a lot of, I don't know whether it's a surprise, but it's always a source of joy when we ask young people what their sources of joy are. Um, so that's one of the last questions that we pose to young people as they're finishing up the survey, partly because we want to end on sort of a positive note, because we've just asked a lot of questions about all sorts of hard experiences. Let's see, I'm trying to think of some of the answers. It's just so much fun to read through their answers and, and see um, what brings people joy. I mean, the common themes are things like, you know, I love playing video games. I love it when my friends, um, you know, give me compliments. I, I recently read through uh, a collection of answers specifically from our non-binary young people. Um, and we asked them, what are things that other people do that make you feel good about your gender? And the number of times that gender neutral compliments from friends came up was just really heartwarming and wonderful. Young people talk about, you know, family members who who, who support them, right? And who don't necessarily completely understand um, or who come from backgrounds where, you know, LGBTQ issues are not something that is talked about, but their love for their child or their grandchild or the member of their family um, you know, allows them to to still be really supportive. Um, that's always a fun answer to read. You know, people talk about their GSA or their LGBTQ club at their school and the opportunity to connect with other young people like themselves. They talk about media. They talk about, you know, their favorite shows mm -hmm. and being able to see people like them on, on the big screen um, and watching or even celebrities, right? Even even athletes or actors, having those folks come out and and express their authentic selves and 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 live in their own joy is inspirational to young people. So that's always my favorite data to to dig into, um, and I think it's always a little bit sort of surprising what what sort of mundane things I think are like, or things that we sometimes maybe think of as being really being small are actually really huge uh, for young people. So they're like showing you they want to be kids. Yeah. yeah. They just want to do kid things. And sometimes, or I shouldn't say kids. I know they're not in a lot of cases, they're not kids, but they just want to be young and have fun. Yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, we, we asked young people, why do you participate in sports? Uh, and you know, fun. Uh, I, I play softball because all my friends are on the softball team. Uh, <laughs> I play soccer because, you know, uh, when I'm on the field, it's just me and the ball and there's, I don't have to think about anything else, right? Uh, so mm -hmm. the ways in which, again, sort of coming back to that mental health literacy that we talked about a little bit earlier, the ways in which young people are able to identify, you know, uh, these are things that allow me to take care of myself, uh, self-care practices. These are things that allow me to, to experience joy. Um, just that level of reflectiveness is, is always really uh, hopeful and inspiring for me. That's lovely. I have a couple more questions for you. One, talking about, you know, these young people having their family understand and respect them or not, does the survey tell us anything about any types of action plans or strategies that these young people are using to improve their uh, their family dynamics, uh, specifically surrounding their LGBTQ identity? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, we, we asked about that and we phrased it in such a way that we don't have really good information about strategies from young people, but we do have good information about actions that families 
can or do take that do feel supportive to young people, we essentially took a list of supportive actions um, that was originally generated by the Family Acceptance Project out of um, Dr. Caitlin Ryan's lab in San Francisco State, um, which is a great resource for, for families of LGBTQ young people. Um, and essentially, it, it sort of enumerates different actions, you know, things like using your name and pronouns correctly, uh, being kind to your child's LGBTQ friends or partners, um, educating yourself on LGBTQ issues. And so we asked young people, you know, do, do your family, do your parents or guardians do these things? And they said yes, no. And then we were able to, to look at that with the mental health outcomes. And almost every single one of those, I want to say maybe 13 different actions had a positive impact on youth mental health. So that was a really exciting finding for us. You know, it, it, it shows that these concrete actions, you know, we, we frequently get questions from parents um, or, or journalists on behalf of parents asking, you know, what, what can I do to help my LGBTQ young person feel more supportive. Um, and that list and those statistics give us a more concrete list, right? And, and we can say, you know, doing things like um, asking open and respectful questions about your, 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 your child's LGBTQ identity, um, being nice to their LGBTQ friends and welcoming them into your home. Um, finding an LGBTQ affirming faith community. Here is the exact impact that that can have on your, your child's mental health. Um, and I think, so I think it really operationalizes that support in an, ex an exciting way. And I'm hoping to, to be able to do more work to share that, that um, those data with, with parents and with families who are trying to figure out what they can do. Sounds amazing. And one last question, which I always love for people to give this, what is the most important thing you think that youth service providers should take away from the survey? Ooh, yes. Let's see. I love this question. Um, we talked about this a little bit earlier about sort of, you, you mentioned that young people who are, who are calling your crisis line, your support line, um, are looking for that one adult, right? Or they need that one adult or that, that one adult that can, you know, be that voice of, of, of support, of affirmation, of, of reason sometimes, if, if someone needs a, a slight reality check, uh, as we all do in life, especially when we're young, um, that trusted authority figure who, who both expresses affirmation and love um, and accountability. I think that is huge, both in our data and again, when I was working in youth homeless services, that was something that popped up over and over and over again. Um, and so we actually have one study that found that having at least one adult that supports and affirms your, your LGBTQ identity can is associated with 40% decreased odds of suicide risk. That's that's a powerful statistic. And, and what I always tell folks, whether yeah. it's like journalists or practitioners or, or folks at conferences, to me, what that statistic shows is that being an ally matters, right? And that it actually really works. Um, and I think for those of us who work with young people, you know, especially if we're working with them in a sort of uh, like a case management or a, or a temporary situation, we don't always know how much impact we're having on them, right? We don't know whether they're listening to what we're saying. Um, we don't know whether, you know, we're being valuable or useful to them. Um, and that statistic and so many of the other feedback that we get directly from young people says like, yes, that matters. Um, being that adult who, who gets name and pronouns correctly and corrects other people. Um, being a faith leader who talks about LGBTQ issues um, in your faith community. Uh, you know, having that safe zone sticker on your classroom door, those are all actions that young people really do notice um, and really do help them feel supported and affirmed. And that in turn can have really positive impacts on their mental health. So yeah, that's that's sort of the message that I, I really, that's the, 
the positive part of our survey data is the sense of, you know, we very consistently find that, that being an affirming parent, uh, being an affirming teacher, being an affirming adult in almost any capacity has concrete measurable effects on LGBTQ youth mental health um, and can have potentially life-saving impact. Yeah, that's beautiful because I know it's true. I completely hear that and it, res it resonates with me so deeply because I was very fortunate to have those type of adults in my life as a young yeah. person it made all the difference and even now looking back i'm just so thankful that not only that there are adults out there that are willing to step in and fill the gap but there are also organizations like the trevor project who hire people like dr jonah to provide surveys like this who that provide invaluable information to different organizations across the world that are dedicated to a cause absolutely oh and Kind of shameless, but anything you'd like to plug anywhere we can find you on social media or look for future reports that you may publish? Oh, yeah, sure. So um, all of our research products are shared directly on the trevorproject.org. Um, you can go trevorproject.org backslash research to get directly to our page. Um, the other service that we provide that I think is less well known that I always like to plug that I think is really useful for both youth themselves and adults working with youth. We actually also run Trevor Space, which is yeah, a online social Space. network. <laughs> yes. Sorry, yes. I don't mean to jump in, but it excites me no. so much. <laughs> No, I'm excited that that folks know about it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a a social media space that is directly by and for LGBTQ young people. It is no grownups allowed except for our paid staff moderators to make sure that it's you know uh, handled safely. Um, but that is our space to to really we're trying to create that as a space of connection for LGBTQ youth, right? We know that a lot of LGBTQ young people, especially with the pandemic and being quarantined at home or living in rural communities where you don't have access to in-person LGBTQ community the internet can be a safe space for that. So we wanna make sure that Trevor Space, that folks know about that. Um, and especially for adults, if you have young LGBTQ people in your life who are seeking connection with other LGBTQ youth, that is a place where they can go. Just to add, the reason that I get so excited about Trevor Space is because I'm totally a child of the millennium. I was the only person I knew who was queer and I was also in the closet. So the first queer people I met were online. I developed my sense of queer culture from other young adults who also came to the internet seeking like-minded people with similar experiences. So a site like Trevor Space, which not only bars adults from joining the community, but is also moderated by the Trevor Project, who's already deeply involved in the queer community, is a personal motivator to work towards increasing the number of safe spaces for young people. I love the concept of the Trevor space. Yes, absolutely. And I, I totally resonate. Also a child of the millennium. Also, absolutely. Those LGBTQ online spaces were so important to me growing up. And so making sure that folks have access to that, especially in safe and supportive ways, is so important. Thank you again, Dr. Deschamps, for joining us today. I look forward to learning more from your future reports. And I know everyone listening today learned something from our conversation. I highly, highly recommend that everyone listening check out the Trevor Project's website, thetrevorproject.org, and also follow them on social media at Trevor Project on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I appreciate everyone for joining us today and can't wait to learn more with you in the future. Thank you. Stay up to date with all things NRS by following us on social media, 1-800-RUNAWAY on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and National Runaway Safeline on TikTok.